0: All right, if you have a Bible, turn to Romans 7. We're going to finish out the chapter this week, and we have a lot to cover, even though we only have five verses. A lot to cover in five verses. We're going to be in Romans seven twenty-one to 25. Romans 7, 21 to 25. All the texts are going to appear on the screen. So if you don't have a Bible, uh, you can simply look on the screen and follow along. I'm going to read, and then we'll jump in to the text. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, says, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now the main theme of Romans 7 has been this. Paul's been wrestling with the question here, is the law, the moral law of God, the problem, or is it sin? And so he's taken an entire chapter to answer this question. This is the context that these famous verses from 14 to 25 appear. We don't want to rip scripture out of context, especially this Set of verses. Here's why. Romans 7, 14 to 25 are probably some of the most famous verses in the Bible. All of us can not only say personally, yes, the things I want to do, I can't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the very things I keep doing. And so when we read Romans 7, we identify deeply with what it's saying. We're like, that's me. Yes, and amen, Paul. We put our hand up as we're reading. (laughs) Yes, this is me. However, don't forget what he's arguing. He's arguing, is the law the problem? Is the moral law of God the problem? Or is it sin? And if you remember the last couple of weeks of sermons, is the law sin? No. Is the law the problem? No. God forbid Sin is the problem, and so his argument is sin is the issue, and what sin does, this is how insidious and evil sin is. It takes good things, and it uses the very good things given from God and uses them to cause us to sin, compel us to sin, entice us to sin, tempt us to sin. So the example that's been used is coveting. Paul said, I would not have known what coveting was if the law had said, do not covet. But then when I read it, all kinds of covetous desires rose up within me. And I saw that I was a sinner. The law was good. Don't covet. That's a good thing. Don't over desire. Don't desire things that are other people's. Don't get mad at them because they have something that you think you should have. Don't be dissatisfied with your life because you feel like you'd be happier with more or better or another. We can all say yes and amen to the feeling, I need a new. I need a new. A new what? Anything and everything. Life in general. I need a new, okay? We all can identify with that. Paul is saying there is a deep dissatisfaction in the human person, and we covet without even knowing it. It's a problem. We just do it naturally. And then here comes this mirror called God's law and it says, you shall not covet. And then he says, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's house, your neighbor's animals is old, old Testament, anything that is your neighbors. In other words, you should be satisfied with what God has given you and not covetous of other people's anything. No, that's hard. And and what happens is when we see a law, sin takes that good thing and produces the very desires that are prohibited. And so the example I used last week is this. You're walking downtown, you see a nice, fresh railing, and there's a little sign hanging off the railing, and it says, wet paint, do not touch. And immediately you think to yourself, mm, I wonder if it is wet. And you You wouldn't have even thought about touching it if there was no sign that said wet paint, do not touch. But because there was a sign, you were like, hmm. You look around, make sure there's no painters with a Sherwin-Williams shirt on, and you're like, oh, it is wet, you know? The the very prohibition made you want to do it. You know what this is like. And so this is what sin does with the law. And Paul has been arguing here, the law is not the problem, sin is the problem. Okay, so that's the context. Now, verse 14, if you remember from last week, is the hotly contested, controversial verse. What is it? Here it is Romans 7 14. There's a shift in the flow of chapter 7, and Paul begins to use personal pronouns I and me. He says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, I am of flesh sold under sin. And here's where the controversy basically opens up. In chapter six, at the end of the chapter, there was a lengthy discussion on slaves. You're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to God and a slave to righteousness. Those are the options. And so flowing from chapter six into chapter seven, how in the world could Paul be speaking of himself here? He says, I, I am Of the flesh, sold under sin. That word sold there has slavery connotations. So the the intellectual debate and the commentary, you know, war, if you will, is this. How could Paul be speaking of himself if he's a Christian? Because he just said in chapter six that Christians are not of the flesh and they are not slaves of sin. They are slaves of God. Therefore, he can't be talking about being a Christian here that's the argument. It's pretty powerful. However, what we argued last week, what I argued last week was there is a great nuance to verse 14. Okay, And just to remind you, I there's so many perspectives on this text. I'm going to briefly name uh, eight, just briefly. I want to remind you, and then I want to give you the one I think he's, he's using here, and then we'll begin to unpack verses 21 to 25. So the first option of chapter 7, 14 through 25 is this Paul is writing of himself in the present as a regenerate, born again, believing, mature Christian. In other words, this is the Christian life. Romans 7, 14 to 25, this is the Christian life. That's one perspective. Number two, Paul is speaking of himself, okay, first person pronouns, I'm um, speaking of himself, but in the past, unregenerate unregenerate, unbelieving, still trying to obey the law in his own strength as a Pharisee. As one who would look at uh, Psalm 19 and say, the law is beautiful. It's good. Psalm 119, a very, very long psalm praising the word of God, the law of God. The law is like honey. Okay. And so Paul is speaking of himself pre-conversion, not born again, trying to keep the law, but as a non-Christian. Number three, Paul is speaking of himself, so again, personal pronouns, but under the conviction of sin, but not yet born again and regenerate. So when would this have taken place? Well, probably that space between Jesus meeting him on the road to Damascus and the three days in which he was blind waiting to meet Ananias, running through various texts in his head of Old Testament prophecies. He met Jesus. Jesus blinded him with his glory. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks, the goads, the Holy Spirit gnawing on you. Isn't it hard, Paul? I see your inner struggle. I see your inner wrestle. And so could it be those three days? This is where Romans 7 takes place. Number four, the I is simply metaphorical. He's not writing of himself here. He's using the I, the me, as a metaphor. A metaphor for what? For devout Jews and Gentile God-fearers under the law. Yeah, that's an option. You have non-believing Jewish people who love the law. They, they read Psalm 119. The law is a beautiful thing. It's a good thing. It's a glorious thing. God-fearing Gentiles are those who proselyted over uh, to uh, Judaism, and they also are trying to keep the law, but unsuccessfully. Now, number five is a little more nuanced. Pay careful attention here. Paul is speaking of himself, yes, personal, but in a divided way. He's speaking from the perspective of a divided man. In what sense? Regenerate person wrestling with sin that still dwells in him, and he's wrestling as a whole person. Okay, that is a nuance. Number six, Paul is describing a born-again, but not spirit-indwelt Old Testament believer. Let me say that again. Paul is speaking... Of an Old Testament Christian who is, yes, born again, but not yet having the Holy Spirit. Because in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had not come yet. He would come to indwell believers after Pentecost. right? He would come upon Samson and give him strength. He would come upon David and anoint him. He would come upon Saul and anoint him. And that's why David in Psalm 51 can say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. That's not for New Testament, New Covenant believers, but for the Old Covenant believer, yeah, the Holy Spirit would come and go. It's remarkable that John the Baptist, as an Old Covenant believer, had the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb and did not leave, anointed from his mother's womb. So is Paul describing here a born-again but not spiritually indwelt person, the Holy Spirit? All right, number seven, Paul is describing himself as an immature Christian, one who's a baby. Old school, carnal Christian. You like the King James Version? You're just a carnal Christian. Is he describing a carnal Christian's experience? Not himself personally at the time he's writing this from Corinth, but rather he's describing the carnal or the fleshly or the young, immature Christian. I don't think any of those seven are it. (laughs) Here's what I think. Okay, now this is very, very nuanced. I've been wrestling with uh, this text deeply now for some time, but I've been wrestling with Romans 7 for about 17 years. I'm not kidding when I say that. So I've been thinking about this and experiencing this for about 17 years. Here's what I think Paul is doing. He is articulating the reality of the flesh's incompatibility with God's law. What's the flesh? The flesh is that part of you that you have as a non-Christian and you still have as a Christian, yet it has been dethroned. It has been in some sense crucified, but yet still breathing, still living, still holding on. It's that part of you that is still attracted to evil. It's that part of you that when you hear a do not or a do, something in you rises up and says no or yes. That's the flesh. And so what Paul's articulating in a personal way is the flesh's incompatibility with God's law. They are not compatible, even a dot or a tittle, if you like the old King James. <laughs> Not compatible at all. That's what he's articulating. He writes from a regenerated or born-again man's perspective, but only, this is important, under the power of the flesh. I know that's a, that's a tight nuance, but I think that's what's going on here. He's talking about, the. remember, the context is, is the law the problem or is sin the problem? And now he's getting deep into the flesh or the part of us that wants to oppose God's law, the part where sin lives. You remember last week, there's nothing good that lives in me. That is in my flesh. And so here, the part that's sold under sin is the flesh. The flesh has no good in it. The flesh has no redeemable qualities. The flesh will never compel you to do anything godly or godlike. It will always oppose God, oppose his law, and oppose you as a born-again Christian. And it lives inside of you. You take it everywhere you go. Every conversation you have, a little part of flesh has its tentacles in it. Every good thing you do, the flesh is trying to get in. You're at war. This is what Galatians chapter 5 clearly says. The Spirit, Holy Spirit, wars against the flesh. They are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Galatians 5 further says, friends, if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the cravings of the flesh. Those are the options. Either you are living by the sin living in you, the flesh, or you are living by the power of the Holy Spirit. Those are the options. There is no middle ground. There's no neutral in the Christian life, friends. And your flesh, make no doubt about it, is sold 100% to sin. Pledge allegiance to sin. I'm keeping it 100 with sin. That's your flesh. And so Paul here is describing the law is spiritual. It's good. It's from God. God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It deals with spiritual realities. It talks to the inner soul, the inner spirit, the moral you. But I, I think he's really talking about himself, am of the flesh. That word flesh in the Greek could be translated fleshy fleshly. I am fleshy. Now we're going to unpack what that means in 21 through 25. He says, I am fleshly or fleshy, sold under sin. All of you, Paul? Well, that is in my sin nature, my flesh, I am sold under sin. But see, that's not all that exists in Paul, but that doesn't appear until Romans 8. And so what he's doing right now in seven is he's just talking about the flesh's or the sinful part of you's incompatibility with God's law. Make sense? Put put your hand up if that makes sense. Okay, I've, I've made it clear enough. Good, we can move on. Now, what I want to talk about here is this as a chunk. And then after we talk about it as a chunk, I want to go back in and talk about what can we do to fight the flesh okay but before we talk about what can we do to fight the flesh i also want to talk about where exactly is the flesh where is it i think this verse tells us so let's let's start going through it so this is a conclusion from verses 14 to 20 so it, this is a conclusion I'm going to wrap up and summarize what I just said last week's sermon, okay? So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, I think you're going to find the word law here a lot in this text. He's using the word law because that's the context of Romans seven. However, he's not here speaking of the moral law of God. He's just using the word law, if you will, as a power or a principle, okay? Let me say that again. He's using law here in the sense of power or principle. So I find this to be a principle or a power That when I want to do right, now remember from last week, Paul sometimes talks about himself in the flesh only, but then sometimes he talks about himself as a whole person who can identify the fleshy part of him. Do you remember that? So we have to be wise and distinguish which I is speaking here. Is it the I that can identify the sinful part of him? and doesn't like it, doesn't want it, wants rid of it, or is this the I that is sold completely under sin? And here, he's saying, when I want to do right, that's the whole Paul. The part that wants to do good is the born again, Holy Spirit part of him. I want to do right. But evil lies close at hand. Friends, I know you've experienced this. Don't you want to be a more patient person? I mean, if the greatest command is to love God and love neighbor as yourself, and the whole moral law lies on these two, and then you go to the Bible and say, well, what exactly does he mean by love? And then you go to 1 Corinthians 13, and you're devastated as love is described. Love is patient, Love is kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not easily angered, it's not rude, and you're like, oh my gosh. Friends, if you're ever impatient with anyone else, you are not being loving and you are violating the second greatest command. How many of you were 100% patient today? I didn't think so. Me neither. I had to apologize today for anger and impatience among many other things I could have listed. This text is saying, I want to be patient, yet evil is right there. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Now, this is one of the strongest arguments if you're saying this can't be a non-Christian because non-Christians in their inner person, their spirit or their soul, they don't delight in God's law. They kick against it. And so this is one of the arguments that the scholars will say, look, this can't be a non-Christian. It's impossible to delight in the inner being in God's law and be unregenerate or born again. It's a great argument. It's powerful. I agree. (laughs) And so what he's saying here is I delight in the law of God. I legitimately want to love the way 1 Corinthians 13 says I should. I want to be patient. I want to be kind. I don't want to be rude. I don't want to keep a record of wrongs. I want to give the benefit of the doubt. I love the law. Yet, yet, I see in my members another law. Okay, so here in 22, he is talking about the law of God. Okay, I delight in the law of God. That's clear, right? It says law of God. (laughs) But here in 23, I see in my members another law. So he's not talking about the law of God here. He's talking about a different principle or power, a different force that is opposing him. Look at the opposition language waging war. Have you felt like that as a Christian? There's literally like a war happening inside of your being. If you felt that as a Christian, you're in good company with the Apostle Paul. He has felt it too. (laughs) So friends, this is my encouragement. If you are constantly and consistently battling sin, If I could underline in bold, I would say battling. You are a Christian. This is the Christian life, friends. Battle, war, gouge out your eye, cut off your hand, confess your sins to one another, repent. This is the Christian life. This will be, friends, I'm sad to say, your whole Christian life. You carry your flesh around with you until the day you leave this earth. Now, what does he mean by members? Look, but I see in my members, my members, another power, another principle, waging war. He means by members, body parts. Your body parts howls the flesh. That's what I'm going to argue. I'm going to argue with this text that your body is the part that houses the flesh. Your body is the home to the flesh or sin that lives in you, as the earlier text said. Not only is it a part of your body, but it uses your body to violate God's moral law. Doesn't James talk about the tongue? The tongue is such a small member of the body, yet it is set on fire by hell itself. You're like, dang, James. And he's like, no, I've heard you have conversations. I've heard you get in the car. I've heard what you, or I read what you wrote on Facebook in all caps with exclamation points. Your fingers are set on fire by hell itself too at times, right? Send I dare you to say something back, waiting for a comment, waiting for a comment, waiting for a comment. Right? You know what I'm talking about. Digital wars. And James is like, you realize this is the sinful part of you. The part that wants to slice up your neighbor into little bits and pieces and stomp on the slices. That's your sin. But see, everyone laughing knows exactly what I'm talking about because you're like, an hour ago, an hour ago, that's how I felt. And all you other people are just being self righteous or you're afraid you're going to be found out, and so you're not laughing. But I know you felt it too. Like, I wish you would. Right? That, that's the way you feel. You're like, I, I just wish you would say something to me right now. My inner ninja is about to rise up and give it to you. And yet the law comes hailing from above, raining down like sulfur and brimstone. Love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, ah. Right? You feel the struggle. This is the tension of Romans 7, 21 through 25. There's a part of you, call it your tongue, call it your anger, your bodily anger. We'll get into that in a minute. Call it your fist that balls up, that just wants to use it to land in someone's face. Why does your face want my fist to beat it up? Why? Why? Why is your face just tempting my fist? That's what you're thinking. I would love to see some blood come down your lip right now, right? That friend, that is your flesh. The law is screaming to you in that very moment love your neighbor as yourself. Who's going to win? The Spirit is saying, walk away. Don't say it. Don't type it. Okay, you typed it. Don't hit send. And you're like, spirit, shut up. That's your flesh. Now, I'm being comical, but you all know exactly what I'm talking about. Listen, your flesh, the sinful part of you, is 100% incompatible with God's law and God's spirit. They are at war with each other. And this is what 23 is saying. I see in my members, in my body parts, another power, a principle. It's waging war against the power or principle of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells where? In my members, in my body. Now, I, I think that it couldn't be clearer than verse 23. The problem is we have a fallen body and our body houses the sin nature or the flesh. He says members twice. At the beginning. I see in my members another law, the law of sin, the law of the flesh. And then at the end, he says that I have this law in my mind, this renewed part of me, this alive part of me to God, and I have the Holy Spirit informing this new part of me. It's the law of my mind. It's the power of my mind. It's the part of him that can look at the law of God and say, yes, this is good. Yes, this is beautiful. Yes, this is what I want. Why can't I do it? That's the good part of you. That's the law of your mind. That's the born again part. You were dead, but verse um, four of Ephesians two, God made you alive. That's the alive part of you. And the Holy Spirit is working within that spiritually alive part of you to wage war with the sinful part of you, your flesh. And sometimes the new part of you, and the Spirit wins, doesn't it? You didn't say it. You said it, but then you knew you needed to say, sorry, will you forgive me? And the flesh is like, no, don't say it. They deserve it. Punish them. Don't say anything. Give them the silent treatment. You know what they did to you, right? And, and your flesh is now taking sin and trying to compound it. Don't do the right thing. Don't make amends. Don't reconcile. Hold on to it. Pile up the offenses. Write them down in a little note on your phone so you can look back and rehearse them. Remember 1 Corinthians 13? Love keeps no record of wrongs. Yet why is it that there's that little play button in your head that if you hit play, it's going to go and just play all the offenses. Friends, you realize you're not loving if you can remember everything everyone's ever done to you. This is the flesh. This is the flesh. Now, I'm in trouble just like you're in trouble. I battle the flesh constantly. And the Christian, listen, will go to war. It's the non-Christian that doesn't really experience the struggle. I used to sin and feel great about it. I used to rejoice in my hard-heartedness. I used to rejoice when I won. Because it filled up my pride and my arrogance which is opposed to god god gives grace to the humble but he opposes the proud every time you feed your pride you are shaking your fist at god you realize that that's not good do you want to be opposed to god And I hope a part of you right now is saying, no. But then there's this part of you that's saying, oh, yes. Yes, I do want to oppose God. Friends, that's your flesh. It's housed in your body, and you need to go to war. You need to fight. This is the Christian life. You say, I want the Christian life to be more like a lounge on the sofa with controller in hand, and my favorite drink, and my feet propped up, and my, my pillow behind my head, that's the Christian life I want. That's not biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity says, go to war. Train yourself in the art of war. Who am I fighting? My wife, yes. No, not your wife. My husband. No. My kids. No, yourself. Be an expert in your flaws, in your failures, in your temptations, and go to war. Verse 24. Now, I love this. I say this about myself, (laughs) just being biblical. Wretched man that I am. How many of you could say, wretched woman that I am? Wretched man that I am. What's the matter with me, is what he's saying. He's looking in the mirror and saying, what's wrong with you, man? Wretched Paul, wretched Chris, wretched insert your name. And then I love the twist now in verse 25. Hope enters in. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice the body again. Housed in my members, this power at work in my members. Now I need delivered from this body of death. And just practically speaking, when does the flesh, not the body, but the flesh, the sin living in you, when does it finally go away? When the body dies. It's pretty clear where the flesh lives, where it dwells, where it operates. And so his question here is, I'm so messed up. Who can help me? Who will deliver me? And verse 25 is the gospel answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, your only hope is Jesus Christ. Who, listen, never had flesh, never had a sin nature, who was born with only good and had the Holy Spirit. And so when Satan tempted him over and over and over in the wilderness, there was nothing in him to be attracted to those temptations. They all did not smell good to him. They smelled terrible. No flesh, though he was tempted. In fact, Hebrews says, in all ways as we were, yet without sin. And so Jesus, friends, waged war in our place won the battle over sin, took your place on the cross for losing the battle with sin, and he got your punishment on the cross. God was pleased to treat him like you deserved. God was pleased with his sacrifice, and so when he died, God said, live. And on the third day, he rose victorious over Satan, sin, and death. And he, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, is the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. Meaning he is resurrected with a new body with no flesh and friends, we're following in his train. We're in the parade. He's out front. I don't care if I'm way at the back. As long as I get a new body, as long as I can get rid of this flesh, as long as I'm delivered, put me last. I don't care. Amen. Amen, brother. So then, verse 25, so then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. So the new part of Paul, the born again part, the spiritually alive part, serves the moral law of God. He he wants to keep God's will. He wants to please God. But... With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Back to verse 14. The flesh is 100% sold to sin. And the unfortunate reality is it dwells in us, in our body. Okay, now with that being said, I want to go back through and look at a few different texts and ask these questions. What do we do to fight the flesh, specifically in terms of the body. If the flesh dwells in the members, if it's the body of death that we need delivered from, then we need to learn how to fight. Okay, now I can't say all that needs to be said. I only have a few minutes left. But we can at least say something. Cool? All right. All right. 1 Corinthians 9:24 to 27, Paul also wrote to the church at Corinth, and in chapter 9 here, he's defending his apostleship from the false apostles. The Corinthians are abandoning Paul as their church-planting pastor, and they're going after these other false apostles who are claiming to be better than Paul, a better orator, more power, uh, and they're taking the Corinthians' money as well. And so that's what chapter nine is all about. However, at the end of chapter nine, Paul breaks into this uh, running the Christian walk. And he's referring to himself here. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now here he is talking about uh, the Ethnician games and the Olympia games, because it's Greek, right? It's uh, the Greek Games, the Greek Olympiad. Uh, You remember those old pictures uh, with the disc, the naked guy, you know, and he's uh, Corinth. Corinth is one of the centers of Greek culture, and so here is Corinthian scholar Eckard J. Schnabel. He says this: Listen, athletes who competed in the games in Olympia had to wear swear an oath. Confirming that they had abstained from wine, meat, and sexual intercourse in the previous ten months. You'd to be a vegetarian for ten months. That's terrible. And I know there's some of you vegetarians out there. I love you. To me, that's terrible. Okay, I I just can't imagine that. It's terrible. (laughs) The wine. All right, I don't drink wine anyway. No big deal. The other one, we'll leave that alone. Not going to go there. In the previous 10 months, runners focus on winning the prize. Simple. Which in the games in Olympia and in the Ethmia games was a crown. So the prize was a crown. A wreath made of foliage. In the games in Ethmythia, it was uh, controlled by the city of Corinth and the wreath was made of celery. That's awesome, right? So you win the Ethmythia. This is how you spell it. That's why I can't say it. I-S-T-H-M-I-A. Ethmya? I don't know. Anyway, those games were held and controlled by Corinth. So clearly he's talking about those games here. And he says, as soon as he talks about running a race, they understand. Oh, he's talking about the... Esthemia games. There we go. That was was my best one. Esthemia. I should name my dog that so I just get good at saying it. Esthemia, no. So, so, run that you may obtain it. So now he's saying here, he's relating the Christian life to a race, and he's telling them, run. In other words, fight to win. Run to win. Fight to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. We just read about those 10 months. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, apparently made of celery. But we, an imperishable. An imperishable. So, now he switches to the personal pronouns. I Do not run aimlessly. He's talking about his Christian walk. I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. He's talking about shadow boxing. Surely boxing was a part of the games and you practice by shadow boxing. He says, I don't beat the air aimlessly. But what does he do? I discipline my body. I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like discipline. I like lounging. Again, back to that couch illustration. We want the Christian life to be an easy chair. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Now, this is paradoxical because what is the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit? self control so in galatians 5 the ninth fruit of the holy spirit is self-control but here paul is saying i keep it under control through discipline which one is it yes good good answer my brother yes is the answer friends listen Any effort you take in the Christian life that propels you into further godliness will be fueled, energized, and accomplished by the Holy Spirit, period. Your flesh is not growing in godliness. And if the born-again new part of you does anything good worthy of God's honor and glory and true righteousness, guess who was behind it? the Holy Spirit. And so sometimes, Paul speaks as if it's him, because you know what? It is him. No discipline's going to happen unless you take action. But your action taken towards discipline and godliness will always be Holy Spirit-fueled. One can't happen without the other. And so throw out this Christian, you know, christianity light phrase just let go and let god no that's no one coasts into godliness we don't you guys ever drove a stick shift i had to learn on a stick first grind you know you're learning second grind third grind new clutch dang it i'll get this you know you don't neutral in the middle no one neutral into great godliness Sanctification and growth. Never. Do you know how you get into the upper gears of sanctification, friends? Discipline. You say, that's a work. Friends, the Holy Spirit works through your works. And we're not talking about working to earn salvation. We're talking about working as a Christian who's already forgiven, already not condemned, already having the favor of God 100%. This is not legalism. This is how you grow. All right, I could go on and on, but we need, to, we need to move forward. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. I love the Greek on this. I pummel my body. Pummel, what a great word. You know how else that word discipline could be translated? It's such a good word. It could be translated, give a black eye. I give myself a black eye. I literally punch myself in the head. I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to act like I'm going to do it. Can you imagine? You're so frustrated with your flesh that you just start beating upon yourself. That's the image. Now, he's not really doing this. and We'll talk about self flagellation in a minute as a form of penance and discipline. That's not what he's talking about, okay? It's a metaphor. But listen, give a black eye, strike in the face, wear down, punish, treat roughly, or torment. That's what that word discipline means in the original language. You say, I don't like that. He's talking about his flesh, the part that is opposed to God. Paul is serious about warring with the flesh. We are not. Jesus is serious about warring with the flesh. Hey, your eye's causing you to sin? You just gouge it out. More than a black eye. That's heightened, man. Just get rid of it. Like, ah, you know, you you got a patch. Jesus is like, yes, discipline. It's metaphoric, okay? He's using hyperbole. No one better show up with a patch next week. Because of me, at least. I discipline my I pummel my body, look, and make it a slave. That's how you could translate that. It's quite a literal rendering of I discipline my body and keep it under control. Literal Greek, I pummel my body and make it a slave. A slave to himself. A slave to righteousness, like Romans 6 says. A slave to God, like Romans 6 says. Not a slave to sin. Lest, he doesn't want this to happen, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now we all know people who were doing well in the faith or even high-profile pastors, ministers, godly leaders who have fallen great falls, don't we? And some of us have experienced the trauma from that because you really trusted these people. It is a really sad thing that when a leader's faith goes south, other people's faith goes south. It always happens. It's a tool of Satan. And so Paul's saying, I don't want that to happen to me. Man, I planted a ton of churches all over the Mediterranean world. I'm overseeing all of these pastors. I don't want to fall. So what do I do? I give myself a black eye. I torment myself. I beat myself. Now, let's talk about self-flagellation. In The early Christian monastic period, they literally did this. They would make whips and they would whip themselves. They would take belts with nails sticking out of them and put them on their flesh and pull so the nails would go into their flesh. That's real. You can look into church history and see this is how people ward with sin. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. How do I know that's not what he's saying? Listen, you can't beat the flesh with the flesh. You try to fight your sin by your own efforts and strength, something that God never told you to do, you're fighting the flesh with the flesh. Martin Luther, the the great reformer, though himself a great sinner, we recognize his greatness because of what he accomplished, not because he was morally perfect and upright. Before he was born again, did you know that he used to sleep on the cold German cement as a form of penance? He used to starve himself and eat only like grass and little bits of of water to punish his own body. And you know what never happened? He never got victory over his sin by doing that. Only when he experienced the grace of God in the gospel... Did he begin to get victory? Because you know what Galatians 5.1 says? It is for freedom that Christ set us free. So Philippians 2.12 and 13 says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You say, that sounds like you doing it, doesn't it? Work out your own salvation. Guess what verse 13 says? for or because it is God who works in you, both to will, that's the choosing part of you, and to do or act, that's the doing part of you, according to his good pleasure. And you put 12 besides 13, you say, well, who is it? Is it me or is it God through me? Yes. Yes. It's both. Let me me make a very clear distinction here. Friends, if it's you... Minus the power of God, guess what that is? Flesh. God does not want us to wage war minus him. You can't. This is what Jesus meant in John 15. Without me, you can do nothing. Nothing. You can do no good apart from me. Discipline. Now, I, I, I want to just give a few practical things and then we're done. I want to hit on sleep and anger. How many of you are exhausted a lot? How many of you are just shining examples of godliness when you're exhausted? Anyone? Anyone? What we need to make sure, okay, is that we are operating, listen closely, in our design. What do you mean by that? Okay. Let's say you want coffee in the morning. How many of you want coffee in the morning? Me too. I never go into my tool bag, get out my hammer, and start taking the pot and pouring the coffee into the hammer. You know why? Hammers weren't made to hold coffee. They were made to pound nails, or if you're a good shot, hit intruders. Their design is not for coffee, right? Friends, did you know that you were designed to need more sleep than you're probably getting? The sleep scientists I would recommend Matthew Walker if you want to listen to a sweet blah, a sweet sleep scientist. <laughs> He's an atheist, but man, is he a brilliant sleep scientist. You probably need eight or more hours a day. He argues that there's about 3% of the population who can get under eight hours of sleep and be okay, and yet everyone thinks they're in the 3%. If I'm like, how many of you think you need under eight hours of sleep? I bet all of us be like, only oh, we need six. You know, one of us is like four. I do it on four. And no wonder you're such a turd. <laughs> now, listen, that, that, is, that is a term of endearment to me because I call my kids turds. Right? See, yeah, see? My kids are turds in my house. My dogs are turds in my house. It's a term of endearment. So I love you by calling you a turd. Term of endearment, precious turd to me. Okay, that's you. One of the, this, this sounds crazy and so practical that you're probably going to throw it out. One of the most spiritually energizing and sanctifying acts you can do is get enough sleep. You say, that's unbiblical. Well, you haven't read Psalm 127 too, have you? Because it says, it is in vain, that means empty, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. I got to get it done. There's so much to do. I don't have time to sleep. Or just one more episode, click. Ungodly indulgence of the flesh right there. One more episode. It's like twelve midnight. You gotta get up at five. You're like, one more. You know. No, friends. Listen, for he, the he in this context is God, gives his beloved sleep. This verse literally says that God doesn't want you living anxiously, trying to fend for yourself and survive. Rather, he wants you to rest in him, but also get your bodily rest. Because the ones he loves, guess, the ones he loves, he gives sleep. Now back at the bookstore, we have a sale on melatonin tonight, okay? So make sure you go back, see Brett. We got the five milligrams. We even got the 10 milligrams, The magical sanctification pill. It's a joke. Okay, it's a joke. My I I don't know why I'm cutting up so much. I don't plan these things. They just come to mind. And sometimes I say them, and listen, 80% of the time I hold it back. (laughs) I don't let it come out. I'm like, no, you better not say that, man. No, we're not doing that. You can, friends, try to get, now listen, I understand we, there's people that struggle with sleep. How many of you struggle with sleep? You wanna sleep, but you can't, okay? I, I'm there, okay? I wake up sometimes in the middle of the night and I can't go back to sleep. I wake up too early, I look at the clock, I'm like, no, and, and I can't go back to bed. That is because, listen, you have a fallen body and you live in a fallen world and we have to fight for the right things that we need. Okay. now here's something you can control often we can't control our sleep sometimes we can by maybe turning off the images before bed how many of you like have terrible dreams and nightmares and you can't figure out why and then i'm like what's your favorite genre of movie and you're like horror movies i watch them every night they're fantastic that is not wise you have not read the proverbs have you Using a little bit of wisdom, like, okay, I'm not gonna drink a Pepsi, especially like a 12 or 24 ounce one, right before bed. Like brushing your teeth with Pepsi. That's not wise because Pepsi is filled with caffeine and sugar. Your bedtime snack should never be Twinkies and Ho Ho's. Just common sense wisdom. Proverbs would put these things to you. You know what you probably could do to go to bed? probably cut off all sugary things maybe an hour or two before bed and then read right before bed i've talked to so many people They're like every time i read i get tired and every time i read the bible i, I get tired boom you think god's gonna be mad at you because you fall asleep reading his bible at bedtime he's gonna be like yes i think he's more excited that you're watching trash on netflix i love you guys I love you guys. Wow, we're clapping for that. That's awesome. All right. <laughs> All right, let's let's move on. Listen, this is this is gonna sting a little bit, okay? We want Christianity to be easy, light work, light lifting, no sweat, no blood and tears. Look at the Proverbs. Now, the Proverbs are filled with admonitions against laziness. This is just one. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. I love the word sluggard because it's the image of a slug. And did you ever see a slug just try to make progress? You're just watching it. And it moves literally centimeters per hour. And you just want to help it along. Where are you going, man? I'll give you a little push. And we are being imaged here as a sluggard because we're just slow, not motivated, leaving a trail of slime. That's us at times, slugs. Go to the ant instead. Go to the ant, oh sluggard. Consider her ways. Meditate on ants. Jesus does this too, right? Go to the birds of the air. Look at them. They're not anxious. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food for harvest. Some of us cannot operate in a good place unless someone is ordering us what to do. You cannot manage your own life unless someone's breathing down your throat. You know if that's you. Okay. The ant here is taking care of business with no chief... No officer or no ruler or boss. No one to tell them what to do. Do you know what ants are? Self-disciplined. They know how to get it done. When I worked at Shop and Save, I worked at Shop and Save for several years. We had this manager. I won't say his name. It was Jim. Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, Jim, (laughs) Jim had a huge set of keys. I mean, he literally had 30 keys and he would put them on his belt on purpose and you'd hear him and, and you'd hear him coming three or four hours away and you'd be like, shut up, hurry up, grab product. And you'd be stuffing the product on the shelf or you'd stop talking to your friend in the aisle. That was purposeful. He wanted to catch you working and you knew he was coming. At least we imagined that's why he had all the keys like that. Maybe he didn't. Maybe we were just guilty. But you'd hear Jim come and he'd be like, oh, stop talking, hurry up here. You'd throw a couple eight o'clock coffees over and you'd put them on the shelf. Hey, Jim, just stalking, you know. No chief, officer, or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. The, the, the big idea here is not lazy but self-discipline. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? Now, I don't know who, if they took their outer shirt off, would have the sluggard shirt on, but I know some of you would. You know. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? Now, the Proverbs is very nuanced because didn't you just say, get sleep? Yes. But we don't only sleep. Okay, so the, the psalmist can say, God gives to his beloved sleep. And then in Proverbs, you can say, you're not only supposed to sleep. Both are true. We don't, they're not contradictory, they're complementary. There's a time for sleep, and there's a time to get up. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's what that means, like a little laying back, kicking it. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. It will just come up quick without you noticing. You're going to be in need. Okay? Or we could extend the metaphor and say sin will creep upon you like an armed man. And before you know it, you've got a gun to your mouth and you're obeying sin. Friends, they did not stop my clock tonight, so I don't know if it's been five minutes or 55 minutes. Someone give me a check. What time is it? I got about an hour. Just kidding. I know I got about five minutes and we're done. Okay. Five, can I get five more? If you, can, can I get five more? Put your hand up. Show me you're with me. Five more minutes. All right. That's 85%, the other 15, sorry, five minutes, okay? You, however, are not in the flesh, okay? Now, now, this is Romans 8, we're jumping ahead here, but Christian, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian, Period. But if Christ is in you, the Holy Spirit, although the body is dead because of sin, this is an image of the body dying and will finally die. This is seen as a good thing. Who will deliver me from this body of death? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit wants you to be righteous, and there's life in righteousness. Verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you this is a this is a declaration of hope that friends one day this body that is the base camp operation uh, battleground where sin and your spirit and the Holy Spirit war, one day you're going to get a new body and the war is going to cease. No more war, no more fight. That means, friends, you can remind yourself and encourage yourself in the heat of battle, this is not going to be the way it is forever. It will not always be so. One day I shall be free and totally free. I have an already, it is for freedom that Christ set us free, and a not yet. I'm not yet fully free, but one day I will be. The Spirit will accomplish this. Now, I'm going to touch on anger and we're done. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 is very clear about anger. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Further, in chapter 5, 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine. For that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, we all get angry. And some of us have more higher levels of anger than others. Some of us have low levels of anger. It just looks like you're very irritable. Some of us explode, and it's clear things are broken in the house. Anger has many expressions. You being grumpy is anger. It's just low level. You having to patch the drywall, me, is explosive anger. And there's always a price to pay. Always. Now, this verse says, be angry and don't sin. That means that anger is not always sinful. Did you know that? Jesus got angry Did you know that one of the attributes of God is wrath? Intense, hot anger. David Pallison says, anger is not an expression, but a capacity. You have the capacity to love. You have the capacity to eat. You also have the capacity to be angry. And when you're angry, don't sin. And now that you've heard that, you'll never sin in your anger again. Isn't that great? And some of us treat you know, growth and godliness like this. It's like, I know I shouldn't do it, and I'll never do it again. Just because you know you shouldn't doesn't mean you won't, right? We all know this. And so did you know, and I'm, I'm going to skip some stuff here, but did you know that the physical effects of anger, this is what's happening inside of you. We're going we're to close with this. This is from uh, an Australian website called Better Health. Listen to this. Anger triggers the body's fight-or-flight response. Our emotions that trigger this response include fear, excitement, and anxiety. The adrenal glands flood the body with stress hormones, such as adrenaline and cortisol. The brain shunts blood away from the gut and towards the muscles in preparation for physical exertion. That's why you feel like you could just throw a rhinoceros through the air when you're angry. Like you could pick up your car that is a truck, like the Hulk, and just Because your body's doing that for you. Heart rate, blood pressure, and, and respiration increase. The body temperature rises in the skin Perspires, the mind is sharpened and focused. Now your body is acting. Friends, what do you do when that's happening to you? And the object is someone you love. What do you do about that? Cortisone's flooding your body, adrenaline is spiked your muscles are intense and the object is your spouse your kids your friend your neighbor the guy in front of you in traffic who you don't even know their name what do you do friends the flesh is tempting you in these moments is it not Self-control is the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit. Discipline. I gouge out an eye. I blacken my eye. I beat my body. Friends, this is, now I do a lot of counseling, okay? In fact, I've, I've tried to figure it out. I think that with my travel time and hours put counseling, it's about 50 plus percent of my hours as a pastor is spent counseling people, okay? And one who also wrestles with anger, it's in every situation, Everyone, without exception. Anger's in the mix. We need, to, we need to wrestle with this. Just because you feel it in your body, you know what that doesn't mean? You should express it. Just because, as this says, the mind is sharpened and focused, and you could pierce with accuracy, reciting the list, of five years of offenses, you know what you probably shouldn't do? Use the tongue that's set on fire at this moment by hell itself. Friends, did you know that something as simple as saying, Jesus, help me. I am about to hurt someone or destroy something. You need to come now. And you're not commanding God, you're pleading for his help. And then you do your part to, if you can possibly, walk away. Even if it's into the next room. Perhaps you're in the kitchen, go to the bathroom. Perhaps you do have the luxury of taking a walk around the neighborhood. Perhaps you do have the luxury of pulling off to the side of the road. Perhaps you do have the luxury of calling a trusted friend. Friends, I know what it's like to be tempted in anger to sin against everyone in your sight. Do you know that temptation as well? Friends, we need to fight where the war is most hot. Because if we get victory there, you know what we have? Victory. (laughs) Let's fight when the stress levels are high and the muscles feel like you could <laughs> you know toss an ostrich those are heavy birds okay you toss an ostrich you're pretty strong and you catch one you're pretty fast let's fight at those levels how do we fight we call upon the power of god and then we practically do what we can that is available to us. Now, if you want more than that, we need to meet for counseling, okay? I'm just gonna, we'll go from 50 to 70 hours. Call me, we'll talk. But that's about all I can get into right now because I've taken 10 minutes instead of five. And I know you're tired and I know that we've done a lot here. There's more that could be said, right? Could say a lot more. We just hit laziness and anger. That was it. Discipline, laziness, and anger. We could go on and on and on, but we can't. Okay? So, what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate who will deliver me from this body of death. You know who will deliver you? Jesus Christ, our Lord. Who, when he was angry, never sinned, ever, even once. Never had a lazy moment, yet fell asleep on the boat because he was exhausted. In other words, he slept when he needed to. He was disciplined beyond what we can imagine, getting up sometimes early in the morning to go find a quiet place and pray so he could have the power of God on him for the work he needed to do. Jesus, our Lord, is our Savior. We are not the Savior. Never look to yourself. Never look to your own resources. Always call upon the power of God the power of God in the hour of temptation, in the moment of temptation. And then, after you've called upon the power of God, do what you can practically. Pick up the phone and call. Trust me, they've been there too. Talk me off the ledge. I'm at 9.8 out of 10. Talk me off the ledge. You know what, if you get that call, you're like, I don't know what to say. Pray. You'll never go wrong with praying. Okay, I'm going to pray for you right now. Oh God, would you please visit with your power? Give them grace to calm down. Give them grace to receive your power and presence. And you just pray. Then you say amen. And you know what you say next? What's going on? And then you, and listen. And do you know how much of a help you will be to people? A tremendous help. Just listen. You don't have to have the answers. I'm here for you. I'm with you in this. I understand. Jesus is our victory. He will deliver us from this body of death. And friends, the war will not always be. Isn't that good news? So we're going to celebrate that reality that though we fight now, we will not fight forever. We're going to take communion and celebrate Jesus' body broken and blood shed for us. Eddie and Frank are going to come up and lead us in a song. And so, as usual, uh, hold your elements until we are done singing, and we will all take communion together. As we are singing, we're going to sing "Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus." Okay, this is what we need to do first, friends. We turn our eyes upon Jesus first ask him for help, plead with him for mercy, ask him for grace. Then we dig into the practical. Thank you, sir. So I'm going to pray. And then Eddie and Frank are going to lead us in turn your eyes. If you could stand, please. Don't take your communion elements till we're all done singing. I'll come back out and I'll lead us in communion. I said I was going to pray. I'm sorry. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you are for us and not against us. We thank you that you have given us of your spirit, of yourself. You've not left us in a helpless state in the flesh. You've given us the very power that raised Jesus from the dead. Father, give us grace in the moment of great, hot temptation. Give us power that we don't have in and of ourselves. May we never look to ourselves for victory and strength, but may we always look to you. We thank you for saving us from ourselves, saving us from our sin. Give us grace. Let us be reminded that for those of us who are in Jesus, there is no condemnation. May we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. In Jesus' name, everyone said... The admonition of this song is that we would not look to ourselves for salvation and ultimate help, even for growth, but that we would turn our eyes to Jesus, who is the Savior and who also is the sanctifier, the one who grows us by his Spirit. Friends, all your sin, all your failure... All your faults, do you realize they're covered in the blood of Christ? If you're a Christian, you are forgiven 100%. Isn't that good news? And when we look at the law of God, and we really look at it, we see how short we fall. And yet Jesus never fell short once in our place. That's ours, the perfect fulfillment of the law in Christ. This is ours, friends. We can walk out of here refreshed, renewed, and rejoicing in our great forgiveness because of our great Savior who is committed to us even when we're practically stiff-arming him. Let's remember Jesus' body broken and bloodshed for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Father, we thank you so much that you are a God who loves us so much that you sent your Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. That we who believe are not condemned, but we are free. We have the righteousness of Jesus. We thank you for this great reality. God, continue to grow us. Show us what area where we are submitting to the flesh and not to the spirit. And would we by your help, by your power, by your strength, go to war and receive the freedom and the blessing of having victory over our sin? Father, may we not put any trust in the flesh, not even one ounce. May we fight it, for it is 100% sold to sin. Father, I pray that we would invest you've given us to grow your word singing praying fellowship confessing to one another taking the lord's supper as we've just done as a reminder god grow us we pray we thank you for loving us we thank you for committing to us to the end pray that we would cling to you for strength we praise you we love you be with us throughout the week. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.